This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. In the headlines, Eye on the Skies, that Chinese spy balloon may be part of a global feat. That downed weather research balloon is now said to have communication collection ability based on debris retrieved from where it was shot down in the Atlantic. Earlier today, we talked to political economist Chris McNally from Chaminade University, whose expertise is in this region. It's kind of spy versus spy. The Chinese, as well as the United States and the Russians, and to an extent the Europeans, the Japanese, the Australians, all are spying on each other. And the Chinese have probably used this as a relatively low-cost, but though scattershot method uh, to gain surveillance, to gain intelligence information. I wouldn't be astonished if they also did indeed use it for some weather research, so that it was basically kind of a dual-use arrangement where, you know, you had intelligence gathering as well as some research being done. But it's an interesting story, yes, for sure. And so this comes at a time, though, when, you know, things were um, kind of sensitive, right? With a lot of tensions in this region. You know, we had thought there was going to be some uh, progress with Lincoln going over there, but not so. Yes, not so. I mean, all of us that are watching U.S.-China relations felt that the relationship had basically reached its low point, its nadir, sometime late last year, probably around October, when Xi Jinping ascended to an unprecedented third term as secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. Then Biden met with Xi Jinping in Bali uh, during early November uh, for more than three hours, and that seemed to kind of mark the turning point, the possible pivot. And then China all of a sudden in early December abandoned its zero COVID policy and quite rapidly started to change other economic policies as well, making all kinds of statements, how important the private sector was, how they had to support innovation, and how they wanted foreign investment, how they wanted to reinvigorate Chinese trade with the rest of the world. And then increase Increasingly, it also seemed they wanted to have better relations with the West, including the United States, but also Australia and Europe. And Blinken's, Anthony Blinken's, uh, you know, our Secretary of State, was slated to visit Beijing last weekend. And that seemed another point in trying to improve what was truly a fraught relationship between the United States and China. And then the balloon comes along. We saw all the talk when uh, the uh, Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, you know, went to Taiwan and there was concern about that. And, you know, we are so reliant on each other, though, you know, our economies are intertwined. So it's an interesting tango that we have to dance. Indeed, you put this very beautifully, yes. Nancy Pelosi visited uh, Taiwan back in August. Yeah, and a lot of folks thought this is truly a low point. Uh, although we now have uh, various indications that Kevin McCarthy might be doing the same thing, we just do not know when. So there's still a lot of future problems that could occur. I suspect the spy balloon will just be one episode uh, in this relationship as both kind of dance around each other because, well, we shouldn't forget that the United States has been conducting all kinds of surveillance on the Chinese as well. So this is kind of going both ways. Uh, the interesting part of this story, though, is how long it took the United States, us, as well as other countries to even detect these Chinese balloons and know that they were doing this for quite a few years. Uh, the reports we have actually state that the Chinese balloon that might have been flying close to t Hawaii was in 2019. So quite a few years back. They're talking about, you know, we only learned after the fact that they had put up these balloons and were uh, collecting intelligence. But I have to chuckle because, you know, I recall last year I saw a large balloon off my lanai and it, it caused quite a stir. And people were wondering what it was. You know, we called the FAA and they didn't know. And then, you know, finally we we learned that, uh, that there was a military vendor that had put up a balloon to collect weather data. So, you know, what are we doing? 
Yes, everybody seems to be doing similar things in this day and age. It's though kind of ironic that we're using balloons, which is a relatively old technology. You know, we have satellites that have very high resolution, but that's this case showed the balloon can fly much, much lower, roughly 60,000 feet. It was above Montana and collect intelligence in different ways and better ways than satellites could. On the other hand, though, as I mentioned, balloons are scattershots. So it's kind of interesting that right at this point, the Chinese seem to be very successful in flying a balloon over sensitive sites in the continental United States. From the indications that we're getting from the Pentagon, so far, no other Chinese balloon has taken that route. So flying basically over Canada, from the north, coming in over Montana, and then really smack crossing over the continental United States. And then they're still gathering the debris, right, uh, from the debris yeah. field, but uh, there's confirmation that they believe it had technology on board that could collect, you know, communications. So, yeah, it is pretty intriguing to see what we're gathering, but at the end of the day, so how is this going to affect our relationship with uh, this other world economy? I suspect... Given what Biden has been saying and given the reactions on both sides that it'll just be another speed bump in the relationship, it'll slow it down further, but not by too much, given how low we've already sunk. I also suspect that the Chinese will be more careful in their surveillance, reconnaissance activities using balloons because it's likely that other countries will get quite upset too if they detect such balloons over their territory. And so it'll just be another episode in, in a long list of issues that are bedeviling the relationship. You've been watching the pandemic, and it was just so curious to watch the people People in China push back about the zero, zero tolerance levels, you know, and yeah. then China loosened up and then we saw the uh, the cases of uh, COVID deaths rise, although, uh, you know, I understand that, you know, there's some question about the validity of some of those numbers if they're only counting the deaths that happen in the hospitals. Yeah, they've been quite surely undercounting deaths because the way they assess somebody dying of COVID is very stringent. It has to be pneumonia, it has to be an infection of the lungs, and so on. So, you know, the official death tally is about 80,000, I think, and it's likely to be considerably higher. But the hopeful pivot was not only abandoning zero COVID and reinvigorating the economy by basically freeing people, but also by changing economic policy quite fundamentally, moving in a different direction of opening up more again to the outside world, of trying to scale back state investment and state subsidies in crucial sectors in stopping a crackdown on tech and perhaps most importantly for the Chinese economy, trying to bail out some of these real estate developers so they can complete the buildings and hand them to the folks who already paid a down payment. So there's been quite a few things going on in China in the last two, three months that made one hopeful, you know, made at least me hopeful that, you know, they would be coming much more open economically, and that might indicate some openness in terms of foreign relations. But it doesn't look very good, in, including what Biden said about Xi Jinping in his State of the Union was truly intriguing. So, Well, you know, as we've been watching the global event, the average Joe has just been surprised that, oh, gosh, we get a lot of our grain from Ukraine, you know, fertilizer, that kind of thing. And, and we all know now that obviously the chips have put a real crimp on our economy, you know, when it comes to new cars and cell phones and that kind of thing. Uh, what is it that China gets from us? Well, the main uh, area where the United States has been putting uh, various sanctions on China is chips. So although the United States itself, American companies, are not dominant in the production of chips, uh, those tend to be Korean and Taiwanese companies, uh, the United States is extremely important in producing equipment to make chips. Uh, and in October, the Biden administration basically put export sanctions on U.S. companies so they couldn't provide cutting-edge equipment to the Chinese. They've been talking to the Japanese and the uh, Netherlands uh, because these two countries also have 
very crucial companies producing such equipment. And these countries seem to be moving along with American restrictions. So we're not quite sure how far they will go. But in any case, that is perhaps the main area where the United States has been putting economic sanctions on China. But we're still exporting a lot of grains, a lot of foods, a lot of machinery, uh, car parts, and a lot of other things to China. So the trading relationship is actually still booming. What do you see around the corner as we get past this bump, this balloon bump? Maybe just more of the same, more speed bumps, more episodes like the balloon, though probably not quite as entertaining, more issues where the two sides will not see eye to eye, where there will be friction. So the most important uh, area I'm watching is whether Washington and Beijing can establish better means just to communicate, just to have open communication channels. Because one of the most disturbing things that happened uh, during this balloon incident is, is that the American side tried to contact the Chinese side. The Pentagon tried to contact the Chinese uh, Central Military Commission, and they just couldn't get through. Uh, and that's really worrying if you have uh, a political system where you can't talk to anyone. It seems all decisions flow through the top leader, Xi Jinping. Uh, and obviously he's very busy and he cannot pay attention to every detail. So uh, then, you know, that, that is one issue that I hope uh, we will see just more communication between the two sides, even if it's just, you know, stating their talking points and kind of talking past each other. Having some open communication channels is absolutely crucial. Yes. Serious stuff. I mean, the late night comedians in Saturday Night Live can poke fun, but yeah, all very uh, serious matters that uh, we need to uh, continue to watch. But thank you so much, Chris McNally. Thank you very much, Catherine. We've been hearing from Christopher McNally, political economist at Chaminade University. He was talking to us about the implications of the downing of what's described as a Chinese spy balloon over the Atlantic. Our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat looks at a facelift plan for Sea Life Park. Our politics and opinion editor, Chad Blair, joins us today. Hi, Chad. Hi, Catherine. Good morning. Good morning. So uh, we've got a story today by Kirsten Downey about Sea Life Park and their plans to kind of get a, a renovation. Right, and I'm filling in for Kirsten today because, if I could just plug something, uh, the Civil Beat newsroom, many of us, <laughs> but not me because I'm talking to you here, <laughs> are in Waimanalo today. We're at the public library for one of our pop-up newsrooms, so I'm happy to fill in. But, yeah, you use the word facelift. That's the word that we used in the story. The city council is really looking to do this major refurbishment of Sea Life Park, which actually is not very far from Waimanalo, by the way. And uh, they have approved a special management area permit uh, to allow for redevelopment of the park, which, by the way, also happens to be a marine mammal sanctuary. It's also a bird sanctuary. And of course, it's also an aquarium, but it also is pretty old. It was built way back in 1964. Well, I was intrigued because I did not realize that the land that it sits on is a state land. Ah, and there's the rub right there. Esther Kiaina, the council member, who I believe that is her district, or very close to it, uh, over there on the windward side of Oahu, is concerned about this. The the, the landowner, or rather the land underneath the park, is the Department of Land and Natural Resources. And uh, an agency, a state agency, is not allowed to profit. Uh, and so there's this question, because Sea Life Park itself uh, is a for-profit operation. Uh, the, those lands, by the way, underneath the park are, are formerly, right, crown lands, lands that were ceded uh, at annexation back in 1898 and then of course later under the state control and as you know ceded lands are a very very sensitive topic yeah and the lease of that land is through the uh, oceanic institute the white pacific university yeah, there's, <laughs> mm -hmm. there's another twist there uh they, they, so yeah that, that's actually a sublease in this case and it's hpu uh the white pacific university's oceanic institute uh, they do run that uh, uh, hpu though it's a private University and so it has different rules. So where Kirsten is giving us an update is that uh, Esther Kiaina is going to, you know, she supports this idea of, of fixing up 
Sea Life Park. It's an important tourist attraction. It's a good educational venue. It's also beautiful. The last time I was there, you, you know, it's oceanfront property, and, and it's really wonderful. But she is worried that somehow uh, the park uh, will lead to profit off of public lands, and that would not be a good thing, she says. Yeah, and not to take away from the, the you know, the research that's done over at the Oceanic Institute, but yeah, you do kind of wonder about that. You know, it's just a complex uh, uh, relationship uh, that's in play over there. Who knew? Yeah, and Kirsten does a pretty good job of, of, of explaining it in a way that even I can understand it. Uh, we can tell you that um, she did reach out uh, to HPU. She hasn't received comment from them. Uh, she she did report that Kia Aina is going to consult with DLNR. We didn't hear really anything ourselves from DLNR, but Sea Life Park at least did respond, and they said they were not really sure what could be done because this lease uh, with HPU extends for 45 years. Uh, so that's that's another twist in this complicated matter. Yeah, so, you know, you're weighing the two, uh, you know, for-profit visitor attraction. Uh, I know that uh, both Sea Life Park and uh, uh, Oceanic Institute do a lot of work with the community groups in Waimanalo. Uh, but it, it's just an interesting relationship when you peel back, you know, the curtain. Uh, right, and, and if you think about yeah, if you think about it, if if you refurbish, if you give a facelift to Sea Lake Park, it's very likely going to be attracting more visitors. And, of course, that means more revenue, more money. That's a positive thing because it does, in fact, as you say, do this, uh, this scientific work. There's another angle as well. There are supporters of the park that really like the fact that, you know, it really puts human beings in touch with with uh, animals, birds and sea creatures in particular, that they normally wouldn't run into, makes them perhaps appreciate nature and want to protect the environment. But there's another angle as well, as there isn't just about every issue under the sun. Animal rights supporters uh, have long criticized parks like Sea Life Park because, you know, they they feel like you're putting in prison these animals that should be out in the wilderness. And that's just, I mean, think about you know, the SeaWorld in, in San Diego and that whole conversation about orcas. Right, yeah. No, it, uh, it it's an interesting uh, situation to be in. I mean, I know they do work with the turtles and the turtle hatchlings that mm, they release right. out there. Uh, but, yeah, very very complex relationship that we've got uh, over there in Waimanalo that many people yep. may not be aware of. Right. One final thing, this, this refurbishment, if it goes through, it's not going to actually increase the size of the park, the footprint, if you will, the existing footprint. So we're not going to see it grow larger. It's right up there against the mountains, between the mountains and the sea, so there's not a lot of room anyway. So Yeah. But certainly lots of questions about what happens there. I mean, I think they even had luau's there at one time. So certainly a, a good thing to question, you know, the, the focus and, and uh, the relationship to that land and that lease. All right. Thanks, Catherine, for having me on and for Kirsten Downey's story today. Okay. We've been hearing from editor Chad Blair for our reality check. To read Kirsten Downey's full story, visit civilbeat.org. A bill to reverse a ban on development in Kakaakomakai got its first hearing yesterday. HPR reporter Kuve Hirishi joins us to talk about the battle that's shaping up at the state capitol. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. The debate uh, continues uh, over uh, what the Office of Wine Affairs can and cannot do with about 30 acres of its land in Kakaako. For everyone, this is around where Fisherman's Wharf is, Discovery Center, that area, Makai of uh, Alamoana Boulevard. Now, the state transferred these lands to OHA in 2012 to settle this long-standing debt over ceded lands revenues. Uh, but for the last decade or so, OHA has kind of been saying it wants to use some of its land to provide housing units, affordable housing. Uh, but that 17-year-old prohibition on residential development has been a formidable roadblock. And uh, you were probably there when they mm-hmm. were uh, discussion about it. And it was largely a reaction. This prohibition was put into place largely as a reaction to a proposed development by Alexander and Baldwin at the time. And this is, you know, um, 400 or plus foot 
towers uh, that were being proposed for that Makai side of the aisle of the boulevard. If you look at Kaka'ako right now, you can see the difference in residential development over on the Maka portion. And uh, folks who are uh, supporting these ban, this ban is saying, you know, we don't want the bottom of the highway to look like the top. <laughs> Senate Bill 736 uh, aims to allow the Hawaii Community Development Authority, the agency that oversees development in Kaka'ako, to approve residential development on these land, nine land parcels that OHA owns. Uh, Craig Nakamoto, head of the HCDA, uh, spoke to uh, legislators yesterday at the hearing and says, you know, this debate over residential uh, use in the area has gone back and forth for about four decades before legislators appeared to have settled the issue in 2006 with that ban. There is a long history to residential development in Kaka'akumakai that started actually out in 1985 uh, when the plan included residential development in 1990, it eliminated residential development in 2005, residential was added again. If the residential development restriction is lifted on these nine parcels, if it is, the applicant would still have to come to the Hawaii Community Development Authority to review any development permit. It would still be subject to the Makai rules. It would still have to follow the current contested case hearing requirements. But Nakamoto says the you know the the laws the law the current law regarding residential development and unless lawmakers change that law the HCDA is going to follow what's on the books uh, which means this ban uh, many who support the ban say residential development could threaten sort of this last open public shoreline in urban Honolulu Ilima de Costa who uh, zoomed in yesterday at the at the hearing was an early supporter of the ban and says she's sort of since reconsidered her position. Because I work with individuals who are um, unsheltered and the majority of them are Kanakama Ole. I also work in Kaka'ako and I would really appreciate the opportunity to live near where I work. Um, so I think that this is just a, the first step in the, uh, a long road to fulfilling both OHA's and the state's obligation to the Native Hawaiian people as well as the people of Hawaii. So going back to that 2012 settlement, you know, OHA accepted this land deal as a settlement for ceded lands revenue that the state withheld from OHA for about 50 years. But OHA maintains it was aware that the restrictions were in place, but it was a take it or leave it deal. There was uh, sort of this expectation that the state or the legislature would be open to discussions further down the road when it came to entitlements. Uh, Casey Brown, the chief operating officer for the Office of Hawaiian Affairs, uh, I had asked him, you know, if this is if this ban isn't going to be lifted, is OHA considering renegotiating with the state and going back and say, give us other lands that we can build on or give us money instead? And here's Brown. OHA wants to be as open as possible to any offers that are made by the state. But, you know, hard to tell Hawaiians to give up land, you know. So we have land in our hands that we believe are valuable. You know, our trustees believe strongly in these lands and what they can become. So any offer that would come to OHA that would ask OHA to deal away these lands would have to be a very significant offer. Sounds like a soft no. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can see how they're posturing. Right. 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 And so this bill, uh, of course, went through uh, extended testimony yesterday and the uh, Senate committees on water and land and Hawaiian affairs have a deferred decision making to the 16th where they'll be hearing more testimony on SB 736. Well, we plan to have uh, uh, Wayne Takamini and Ronnie Wame, who's with the Friends of Kiwalos, on our show tomorrow just to talk about the history and the thinking yeah. back then, because, yeah, this is a, a large open area and, you know, back then the concern was, you know, we don't want public lands to be sold off to luxury development, you know, and in this case, Native Hawaiians, they just think it should be open. So we'll explore that with them. So uh, we'll we'll see what happens. But thank you so much, Kuvehi, for the update. Thank you. We've been talking with Kube Hirishi about the Kaka'akumakai development. Uh, Look for more stories on this issue as it develops at hawaiipublicradio.org.
Tom Papa filling in for Peter Sagal. On last week's Wait, Wait, Adam Burke worried about companies increasing productivity by canceling meetings. I used to work in offices, and if they cancel meetings, where am I going to fall asleep? <laughs> we'll keep you awake with our Not My Job guest, Gina Davis, on this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Beginning Saturday morning at 11, following Radio Lab. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. Effective February 13, Hawaiian Telecom will discontinue carrying HPR along with all other local radio stations. You can listen to HPR on hawaiipublicradio.org, our free HPR mobile app, your smart speaker, or on the radio. Please direct your comments to Hawaiian Telecom at 877-482-2211. Rescue continue to search for survivors from the massive earthquake that has claimed now more than 20,000 lives in Turkey and Syria. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres is asking the international community to send money to the two countries. The stress and anxiety associated with natural disasters can be at best worrisome and at worst debilitating. Here in Hawaii, we live with the threat of natural disasters from earthquakes and volcanoes to tsunamis and hurricanes. Local nonprofit Child and Family Service recently started a natural disaster hotline to give people the chance to talk to someone about what they're feeling and to get connected to resources for help. Christine Finiao is the director of East Hawaii Programs. The conversations Russell Subiano caught up with her in her office in Puna. What community needs did CFS see that prompted the launch? What issues do they hope to address? So I think just seeing and being aware of what's occurred over the last 10 years and just looking at even recent events that have occurred, such as in recent weeks, the flash flooding again, the eruption of Mauna Loa and Kilauea volcanoes again on the Big Island. And one of the things that CFS believes is that Many families who experience trauma from past disasters may still have a need for mental health services and being you know, connected to resources. And we also know that with these recent events that occur, that can cause some of the feelings that people experienced during the natural disasters, those feelings of trauma to resurface. Because we know that trauma doesn't just end when an event ends, it can actually go on for many years. And so that's really the main reason I would say that we feel a need for this type of service. So I think when we saw this opportunity, we really felt like it would be a good fit within our mission. And a lot of the reason why we started the hotline, too, was obviously the recent eruption on Mauna Loa. So that really kind of prompted we need, we need to get this in effect as soon as possible, because at that time we really didn't know, you know what was going to happen. And it really, you know, there were a lot of concerns with the sloping of Mauna Loa, and it could impact either East Hawaii or West Hawaii communities. And then there was concern that it might cross the Saddle Road, which would cut off, you know, access between both sides of the island. So we really wanted to get that hotline up and going. And we also wanted to provide a resource for people who might feel stigma, you know, for feeling stress or for having trauma as a result of what's going on in their environment. We wanted to reduce that stigma and we also wanted to show that it's not just something that ends when an event ends, it can be ongoing. And so there can be these these ongoing needs for years as people rebuild their lives after natural disaster or rebuild communities. And so in recent weeks, when you look at the flash flooding, and then you look at the, the events with the two volcanoes erupting, that just resurfaced a lot of a lot of old feelings for people who've been through trauma. And you don't even have to be directly affected. You can know somebody who may have lost a home or 
and seeing what's happening in your community can deeply affect people, even for those who aren't being directly affected by the crisis. And it seems to me that there's also a fear of something that might happen, a future event Mm -hmm. that might happen. And it seems like having this hotline for people who may be feeling this anxiety of what might happen can also help them that way. Absolutely. And you talked a little bit already about the natural disasters, but there's also man-made disasters that I think that people may have some anxiety or experience trauma, especially when it comes to something like Red Hill, you know, worrying about whether water will be safe to drink. Yeah, so you bring up a great example of what happened on Oahu with Red Hill. That affected thousands of people with the fuel getting into the water supply on Oahu. And we still don't know what that impact may be. We also have seen in Maui the diesel fuel spill on Haleakala. And we still don't know the impact and how that's going to continue to affect people. We also know the the false missile alarm, you know, when that occurred, that caused so much fear. And when you think about it, that went on for 38 minutes where we didn't know what was happening, where people believed that we were under this threat. And we know that it can take, you know, 12 to 15 minutes for for the impact, you know, from, from North Korea for that to happen. So that that really created, we actually opened our parent line during that time, CFS opened our parent line to, to families to be able to get support and even how to talk to their children about what had happened. Because we recognized that that trauma, you know, that impacted a lot of our KP and knowing, you know, families calling their children, families, you know, do, trying to rush to, to a safe place during that time. So there have been man-made things that have occurred as well, in addition to the natural disasters, which really just kinds of compounds what we've been through as a, as a state. And then when you look at even just the recent COVID pandemic, that impacted us, you know, greatly, just like it did the rest of, you know, the United States. You know, when you look, even look at the last decade of just the different things, the different events and things that have occurred, it really has been pretty steady, you know, of things happening. And so having that resource, like you said, even if just if there's fear of future things happening, there's that resource that they can reach out to. So when these traumatic reactions or or when trauma triggers happen, what do they look like or or what do they feel like For, for people who may not recognize them right away? How can people identify what they're feeling and know that that's what they can call about. So it could be a range of symptoms because everybody experiences trauma differently. And some people may experience it right at the beginning of an event. And then some people may not experience the reaction sometimes even years later. So it's really varied and it could be, you know, you can see emotional symptoms, behavioral symptoms, things like anxiety and depression, withdrawing, It can be a sense of impending doom. When certain things happen, PTSD can also occur as a result of the traumatic event. So it really, it really ranges in people and that's important to know. So I think, you know, if you're feeling any kind of distress, you know, you don't have to have a diagnosis of PTSD or anxiety or depression. If you're feeling any kind of distress at all, that's what this hotline is for is to really provide that that opportunity for people to talk story with trained staff who are who are trained to recognize what some of the warning signs are and part of that is you know being able to connect them with resources in their local communities to help and to also connect them you know to further screening if further screening needs to be done to really kind of assess what their needs are and what some of the symptoms are to better help them, that's what this hotline can do. So when people are experiencing these traumatic reactions, whether it's anxiety or or fear or distress, how do they access the hotline? What's the number to call? Okay, so the number is 808-681-1445. Okay. 
And the hotline is actually, it's in operation between eight and five, Monday through Friday. But we do have a way that people can leave messages if they're calling after hours so that we can connect with them the next day or later that day to provide services. As more people know that this tool is available to help them process not just the physical, but the emotional and mental impacts of a natural disaster, what do you think the future could look like with this tool readily available? How does this impact the overall mental and emotional state of the people here in our our state? I think there's several ways, Russell. I think one, I think it reduces stigma. I think it shows and builds awareness that having trauma or having distress as a result of a disaster, it's not an unusual or abnormal thing and that it doesn't just end when the the situation ends. So providing that ongoing support as people experience different feelings, emotions, and even their needs change as they navigate through and after post-disaster. But I think it also helps us to get to people sooner. And I think that's the key. Um, I think building this awareness, doing this outreach, using this hotline allows us to reach people when they're beginning to feel too, as well, signs of distress, rather than having them, you know, have to wait maybe to get services. And also it provides that ongoing service. You know, a lot of times what you see when there has been a disaster is you see a lot of resources and a lot of things that are out there for people, but then at some point they go away. And so I think part of this outreach and this this hotline, it allows that it says, hey, we understand that this is still something that is greatly needed and it's available to help. Well, thanks so much for your time, Christine. Thank you very much, Russell. It's my pleasure. That was Child and Family Services' Christine Flinio talking with HBR's Russell Subiano about the Natural Disaster Hotline. That number again, 808-681-1445. We'll have a link to more information on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Mark Van Honecker, author of Imagine a City. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about a pilot's view of the urban world and some of our greatest cities. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Opera Theater, celebrating Valentine's Day with Donizetti's comedy, The Elixir of Love, set in present-day Hawaii, February 17th and 19th at the Blaisdell, hawaiiopera.org. This Saturday, HPR presents Aine. This in-person show is a part of HPR's Mele Hawaii concert series at our Atherton studio in Honolulu. Experience this Nahoku award-winning group up close and personal. Purchase your tickets online at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. knows for sure how many feral cats are there across the state, but estimates put the number on Oahu in the hundreds of thousands which can threaten our wildlife. Cat Charities is on a mission to stabilize the outdoor colonies and educate the community about the work they do. Executive Director Karen Tyson, a licensed neuropsychologist, is with the nonprofit Animal Rescue that focuses on trap, neuter, return, or TNR. She sat down with the conversations Lillian Song. 
A female cat can begin having babies when they are actually still babies. Like four to six months, they can go into their first heat. It's warm here year round. So their reproductive systems are ready to go year round. These moms are literally babies themselves. So if an average litter is between four and six kitties, okay, let's just say five. And if three of those are girl kitties, then within four four or five months, that mama is going to be getting pregnant again. And these babies are also going to be having babies. So if each of those, we now have four cats having babies, the three babies and the mama, and they're each having five babies. So now we have 20 new kittens in the world. Hmm. Okay. If a number of those are also female kitties within the next four months, we're all having babies. Pretty soon we're up to a hundred cats. Okay, and pretty soon that number grows to a thousand, and within three years, one unfixed female cat can have up to 30,000 cats. It's a ridiculous number. 30,000 cats. So an unfixed matriarch biologically could be responsible for that ginormous number of cats. TNR is in place though to help mitigate that. Exactly. So the importance of TNR, if there are many, many, many people and organizations that are out there trying to make a really big difference in this problem. We recognize it as a problem, not only for, you know, environmental reasons and, you know, other concerns that we all have, but also for the animals. There's just not enough food. There's not enough resources to go around. And these animals end up living terrible lives. They're hungry. They're feral. So they're not able to be handled. So they often won't get the vet care that they need and they live terrible, miserable lives. So if we can prevent that by fixing as many male and female cats, takes two to tango, right? We want to solve it from both sides. Then we can reduce that population and it's in everybody's best interest to have those numbers be lower. So we get calls from all over the island. We drive up to the North Shore and up to the Waianae Coast and we can be in Hawaii Kai and we can be all over. So we'll get calls about colonies of kitties and other people like homeowners who have kitties living in their neighborhood that they see that are not fixed. If you see a large population of of cats, you can tell if they're spayed or neutered by looking at their ear tip. So kitties will get an ear notch and it looks like a little V that is taken out of the tip of their ear when they're under anesthetic so it doesn't hurt them. And this indicates that that cat has been spayed or neutered. If you see a colony and you see a lot of kitties that do not have that ear notch, means that there's some work to do there. So pay attention to that. And you can tell just for interest, a kitty with a left ear notch is a male and a kitty with a right ear notch is a female. So you can tell the, the gender of the kitty. I tell my husband that girls are on the right because we're always right. Yeah, he seems to cough at that. Yeah. But if we get calls, we will go out with our van. We have a van that is just designed for trapping. It can hold about 100 traps, and we can go out and set traps, catch the kitties, take them to the vet, get them spayed and neutered. We also get them vaccinated and they get microchipped. And if the kitties are young enough or friendly, we do everything in our power to pull those kitties off the street. We'll send them out to foster homes. We'll get them socialized. All their vet care will be taken care of and we'll get them healthy and ready for adoption. So we work with Toe Beans and Dreams and also Popoki and Tea. We put kitties into those two cat cafes, and that way we're able to get them homes and get them off the street. You're doing the hard work of catching these feral cats. It's this community who are practicing TNR. So a caretaker may have fixed all their cats, thinking they have things under control. And then voila. A newcomer. Yes. Not fixed. Yeah, that's one of our biggest challenges. So education is by far the thing that we need to get out there because education is key. One of the things that people don't understand is that number of how quickly an animal can start to reproduce when they're not fixed. So what will happen commonly, unfortunately, is that you know a family will have their own pets, they're not spayed or neutered, and they have a litter of kittens, and the family thinks, oh, I see all of these cats down at this shopping center or over at that school or wherever, it doesn't matter. They see a colony there and they think, hmm, they all look happy. I'm just going to drop these cats there and they'll live out their life there. 
but they're not fixed. And so even if we go and completely have a colony that is 100% fixed, we always have to be looking out for newcomers that are being dropped. And it's not a solution to just drop these animals. And this is one of the topics that's happening right now in Hawaii Kai is the conversation about, you know, culling all of these feral cats. Is that going to solve the problem? It may solve it right now, but then in a very short time, the same problem will be back. A colony of cats is very, very much like a gang. There is a hierarchy in that colony. There is an order of who's in charge, who's the dominant one. And if you go drop a new cat into that gang, it's not welcome. And so what that gang will do is they will prevent that cat from eating. They will beat that cat up all the time and they will keep it out of the main part of the colony. So when people say, well, I'm going to call a pest control company and just wipe out all these animals, you know, in this particular shopping mall, I'm just using this as an example, a pest control company will come in, it's very inhumane, and these animals die horrible deaths. And then within three months, there's new cats that have arrived because they're being dropped. And now there's none of the original colony to keep these new ones out. So the colony actually will grow bigger because it's creating a brand new colony. So it's open for business, if you will. It's actually better to control the population by fixing an existing colony and then putting feeding stations in appropriate areas that are going to be away from the public or in a nuisance area. And many people will say, well, what about the litter and the stink and the, you know, the pooping and that kind of thing? If you create an area that's far away from the people as the feeding station and a place where they can use the, the bathroom, we can actually really keep this very well controlled and out of the public eye and it not becoming a sanitation issue. So it's much better to keep a colony in place, but get it 100% managed and then have caretakers looking out for newcomers that are dropped off and educating on a bigger picture. What do you say about concerns raised about cats and the parasitic infection toxoplasmosis? Yeah, cats are not the only ones with toxoplasmosis, first of all. Okay, so many other animals, including humans, can have toxoplasmosis. Okay, so it's not just a cat disease, it's many animals. The one thing that people have to understand is that the bigger threat to our wildlife, including our monk seals, is often people. It's the fishing hooks and it's the fishing lines and the nets and the different debris that's in the ocean that's causing our seals to get sick. If a healthy monk seal encounters toxoplasmosis, their immune system, nine out of ten times, is healthy enough to beat that off. It's not a problem. But if a monk seal is already weakened because it has fish hooks and nutrition's not good and it's starving and it's sick already from an infection, bingo, now we've got a problem. Okay, So a lot of the times people will blame the cat's entirety, but it's not entirely the cat's fault. So again, it comes back down to education as far as what people are doing. It's amazing when you really stop and break it down. It's us as humans that are the bigger problem here. So there are several organizations out there that focus on doing trap, neuter, return. And Hawaii Humane Society does spay and neuters for feral cats at zero cost. They will do this for you for free. They will also loan you traps and teach you how to trap. And you can bring these cats in and get them fixed and then return them back to the location after they're spayed and neutered. And so you can be an active partner in helping with this problem. Another amazing organization that's been doing this for more than 20 years is Hawaii Cat Friends. And they do spay and neuter clinics for feral cats multiple times in a month. And they also do not currently charge anything at all. And you can also borrow traps so you can do the trapping there. Hmm. You have a van that can hold up to 100 traps. Have you ever done a night catching that many cats? Well, yeah, we have. So we have events that come up. There's an organization called the Greater Good Charity, and it's based out of the mainland. And they come once a year and do an event here called The Good Fix. We've done it now two years in a row, both times. It's been held at Aloha Stadium. Hawaii Cat Friends, Cat Charities, several other nonprofits, Aloha Kitty TNR, Lucky Paws, Rescue Kitties of Hawaii. A lot of different organizations have partnered with them so we can go out and catch 
cats. They bring an enormous team of vets and vet techs. And so basically we can catch as many cats as we can catch and they can deal with them. Like they can take all of them. And so Beth and I, my vice president of my nonprofit, we would be out all seven nights dog tired at the end of it. A lot of nights we were catching 68, 70, 80. And with our other trappers who were also out, we would easily get over 100 cats in a night. That wouldn't just be Beth and I alone, but it would be other trappers that were with us. Mm. So the good fix, that's something to keep on our radar. But something closer to home is something that your organization is offering as well? Yeah, we're very excited to do an event where we're going to be offering trapping classes. So if you want to get involved, you can come out to do our trapping class. There's going to be a night of classroom lectures first to tell you the history of trapping and how we do trapping and why it's important. And then we're going to take you out twice into the community with an experienced trapper. And we will actually physically go boots on the ground and set traps and teach you how to do it. And after the whole process, you'll get a certificate that says you are a certified trapper, if you will. And then at that point, we'll be happy to lend you traps and have you come on our trapping team and get really actively involved. You are helping by offering these classes. How will people be able to access that? Look at our website, catcharities.org, O-R-G, or go on to Tobin's H-I, Tobin's Hawaii, or they can call us, 808 650 one, two, three, four. That's our Cat Charities line. Be happy to give them more information mm-hmm. about dates. It's coming up at the end of February. I think it's the week of the 20th, and we would love as many people who are interested, but I heed warning to everyone. Getting involved with rescue and trapping, it's a little bit like the mafia. Once you're in, it's hard to get out. <laughs> so we'd welcome you to the family. And it's a, a really good group of people that were out there making a real positive change to the community. That was Cat Charities Executive Director Karen Tyson talking with HPR's Lillian Song. In partnership with Cat Cafe, Tobin's and Dreams, Tyson's nonprofit will be holding cat trapping classes later this month. We'll have links to learn more and an extended interview on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org later today. is it for us today. Up tomorrow, we plan to hear from Kauai Mayor Derek Kawakami. Got some questions for him? Call the Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And if you want to listen back to something you heard, find the Conversation Podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.